is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through. Oh, it's incredible. You could not write a script like this. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. All right, let's try this again. The audio still sounds crisp, still sounds pure. It's amazing because it's not coming through my laptop over a Zoom call. It's in studio through a beautiful XLR microphone here on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University in the Bronx, New York. I am James Burley. This is FUVFC, WFUV Sports' best, if not only, soccer podcast. I'm joined by my partners in soccer, Nick Guzman and Chris Carino, for another installment, another year. We're back on campus, in studio. Nick, take it away, buddy. I'm so excited to be back. I mean, I think there was a moment where Keenan Troy and Michael Hernandez were set to graduate, or we knew they were going to graduate, and you and me were the only soccer people besides them. Yeah. Now we got Chris. We've got other people coming through the ranks. This podcast is alive and well. We've got bodies for days. This, I love this podcast. I love doing this. I love doing it in person much more than doing it on Zoom. Oh yeah, and I'm just so excited to be back with you guys. Yeah, I'm. I'm excited. Uh, my favorite baseball team never fails to put me in a bad mood every single day of my life. Um, but something that has been raising my mood is the beautiful game and the beautiful game hitting its stride once again. I really feel like we're kind of in the thick of it now. You know, exciting prem drama, exciting MLS drama, exciting Fordham drama, kind of dra- drama everywhere. But I'm just excited and really one of my favorite times of the year. This is about as special it's ever been to be a soccer fan, at least in this country. You know, we had the World Cup last winter that fed into you know a fun little. Uh, end of the European calendar with Man City winning the treble. I mean, it wasn't as fun for myself, the Manchester United fan, but I'm sure it was a lot of fun for many, many others. And then that brought about the summer, the arrival of Lionel Messi to the U.S. And now my favorite part, arguably, is the college soccer season's back underway. And arguably, yeah, that's my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. And we've got some exciting stuff for the Fordham men's and women's soccer programs this year both trying to bounce back from some struggles last season on both sides. But now they've both come out of the gates pretty strongly in their first few matches before conference play really kicks up in the middle of September. But now with the sort of quote-unquote pre-tune-up matches that start the season, I've liked a lot of what I've seen from both the men's and women's. Nick, you've had the privilege of calling the men's team Chris you and I have had the privilege of calling the women's team thus far. Uh, the women play tonight against Stony Brook here at Jack Coffee Field. The men play tomorrow against UPenn, also home. And those are both two much better teams than they faced earlier on. Nick, you got the privilege of seeing the men's team. So I'm going to start with you. Who have you been really excited with personnel-wise? What has really worked for the team? And what are you expecting them to do in the A-10 this year? Yeah, lots of changes from last year. Last season, this, te- this is a team that won just one Atlantic 10 conference game. They drew nine times over the course of the season. It seemed like almost every game that they played last season ended in a draw. And there was a lack of cutting edge in the attack. And then beyond all that, 
you know, they lost a lot of a lot of veteran players after last season. You lost your two center backs in Jack Slaus and uh, Conrado Duhauer. You lost uh, uh, Daniel Espaleta in the middle. A lot of very important players for this team moved on. So we had 15 newcomers coming in uh, for the start of this season. A lot of older grad transfers, a lot of people from Atlantic 10 schools as well. Um, so some infeeding going on there. But then also some young freshmen, exciting freshmen coming in too. But for through that first game against Sacred Heart, I was... I was impressed by a couple of different people. Number one, Kai Grisa, the UConn transfer, grad transfer. He was really pulling the strings in the middle. He's wearing the number 10 jersey, and he played like it. He was sort of orchestrating everything that Fordham was doing going forward. He had a, a beautiful goal in that game, making a late run into the box uh, off a cross from another transfer, a Yale transfer, Sikvis Arneson, who's a guy who had a lot of goals, a lot of assists in his time at Yale. Looks to be sort of a wingbacks, left winger type situation, a left-footed player. There's a lot of excitement to be had, and you also think about this center back duo. Luis Puchol was was back there with Jed Dixon, and I thought that worked really, really well for this Fordham team. It's a totally new duo from what we saw last season. But in that opening home match against Sacred Heart, whether it was Timo Umerk scored a penalty, Daniel DiPolito looked really good. He drew that penalty, got, got to a ball first in the box. But it looks like whether it's someone like DiPolito is going to take a step from what they were last season, playing a little bit sporadically to being a, a, a staple in this Florida midfield. And then the grad transfers. You look at that goal from Grace, it was assisted by Arneson, the Yale transfer, and then Lewis Lair, the George Mason transfer, also getting involved. So these transfers are having a big impact on this team. And you didn't really know what to expect uh, coming into this season just because when you have that much new personnel, how quickly can they gel together? But it's an older group. It's an experienced group. It's a group with... A-10 experience is a group with, in goal, Carter Abbott with Big Ten experience. He's a Wisconsin transfer. He started at Wisconsin last season. He wasn't riding the bench. He started games for the Wisconsin Badgers last year. So when you have all this old experience, there's there's reason to be optimistic. And, you know, winning one A-10 game last year, I think everyone is on the same page. that That's not acceptable. That's not the standard that this program wants to strive to. Um, so opening night, getting winning at Sacred Heart 3-0 was, was a good result. And then going on the road at St. Francis... Uh, it was a good performance. They took a 1-0 lead, but St. Francis was able to equalize later in that match. But it's hard to win on the road no matter where you go. So a win and a draw to start the, the, the non-conference schedule is definitely a win for this Fordham team. I, I completely agree. I've been very pleased to see that the goals are coming too because that was one thing that they didn't have last year is they would stay in games, they defended really well, and they would they would claw out a lot of results, but they would be through equalizers because they would find themselves going down early and chasing games. Now they win 3-0 to open it up against Sacred Heart not the toughest of opponents but still a good strong win against a formidable team and then St. Francis who play in a similar uh, style conference I'd say to the A10 a lot of between NEC a lot of um, and A10 a lot of cross conference matchups earlier in the season especially with the women's side as well and to go and get a 1-1 draw on the road there is good they scored first Florian Deletioglu a couple of goals now too so that's really good to get the captain up and running switching gears to the women's team now uh, I watched them and had the privilege of calling them destroy Wagner 4-0, and they played a, to Wagner to a much tighter game last year, and that Wagner team was very, very similar to the one I had last year with uh, a few freshmen sprinkled into the lineup. And this Fordham team is a similar thing as well, where you've got sort of the nucleus of the team in midfield has stayed the same, Abby Doyle, Tristan McFarland, but then you add players like Riley Carroll on the wing and Sari Frankel, who we talked about before we got on air, Chris, who have been absolutely spectacular. So I want to ask you the same question I asked Nick. 
who in particular have you been impressed with and what are you expecting this team to do moving forward uh, even tonight against Stony Brook? Yeah, it's an interesting observation you made, James, because I do feel like when we talk about just kind of the era or kind of generation or maybe just how they're moving, it feels like the men and women are kind of moving in the same wave, same direction when it kind of comes to that young attack, but also experience kind of in the backfield. Um, shout out my family friend, Danny DiPolito. The kid's an absolute wizard. Anyway, oh. I feel like someone who plays that Danny DiPolito role, at least on the other side of the ball, is the girl, Sari Franco, we were talking before. You know, they have kind of a young nucleus in the middle. Obviously, the girls you said have been sticking around, but girls like Caitlin Murphy and Sari Frankel, really both underclassmen, both young girls with not a ton of experience, especially in the A-10, um, they just seem to be the difference, at least in the attacking sense, you know, the entire game. But then you kind of look down that depth chart, look down um, the rest of the lineup, and then you see the defense, and it seems that they're almost going for an experience kind of component there. You look at a girl like Emily Krakow, she's a grad student, she almost controlled most of the pace, at least in the back when they kind of had that passing out the back kind of situation they had going on, at least in the first half. Um, but another girl like Olivia Redden, the senior, just experience in that backfield, I think, has been important for them. But that young, fast, exciting experience has really been what has kind of created the fireworks for them attacking. And they opened up against Drexel on the road, lost 3-0, and immediately have come back. And their two performances since, they've outscored their opponent 6-0. to So it's been a great response from the Fordham women's team. And, you know, with that game against Drexel, having a lot of young players introduced into the fold, you expect there to be growing pains. The way that they responded against Wagner, they controlled every moment of that match. Against Stonehill, the same deal. Stonehill, you know, we talked about their program rising to the ranks of D1. They're going to experience growing pains too, but that's why you have these games this early in the season. So, If I was going to play a little, you know, devil's advocate Mm -hmm. and kind of just speak a little bit on a negative note, I do feel that that inexperience in the midfield, they had trouble gaining possession in the midfield. I felt like it was very much a ping-pong ball for a lot of the Stonehill match, at least, and I feel like that's one thing that they could really just improve on in a basis form, just kind of keeping that possession around in the midfield because they do control well, as you're saying, in the back when they kind of pass it out the back, but in kind of pushing it up forward, especially into that, you know, final third, it's really kind of a point of contention for them, at least, you know, for me, when they kind of play teams with real talent Mm -hmm. and, you know, not these warm-up games. Yeah, I think bringing Emily Crocco in, someone who has experience playing both as a midfielder and defender in the back line has helped shore out those issues uh, quite a bit, but we'll see how they perform tonight at 6 p.m. against Stony Brook. You can catch that game on MSG Networks or ESPN+. Plus. Our very own FUVFC's very own Andy Rodriguez Andy. will be on the call for that one. We love him. He's going to kill it tonight or tomorrow night if you want to watch the men's team. They played UPenn at 7 p.m. also on ESPN Plus and MSG Networks if you're in the New York area. So we are right into the swing of things with NCAA soccer, and I can't be any more excited about that and something that's maybe a little less serious uh we're going to talk about the uefa champions league so <laughs> yeah Champions the, league or the atlantic there's yeah. levels to this stuff man you got the a10 tournament and then you got this tournament could, that, he, could he do it on a windy night in coffee could he that's do it question. on a windy night on the road in the bronx honestly could Messi do it on the road at slu <laughs> could Dude, he i don't think could he, he do it on the road at florence florin Oglu could do it could, could Messi? could Messi? i don't know well, we'll just wait and see. We're going to go right into the swing of things with the Champions League. And Group A, I think, might be my favorite group. Not because it is the toughest group all around, but because it has two clear big giants. And you want to see one of those giants topple by the wayside. Those four teams, of course, are Bayern Munich, Manchester United, FC Copenhagen, who always seem to be in the Champions League and always seem to spoil the party for one team or another, but never advancing themselves. And the Turkish giants, Galatasaray. Uh, just go around the horn. We're going to spend a couple minutes on each of these Champions League groups. The clear favorites here are the German champions, Bayern Munich. Uh, shout out Chris Shepard in the back there in his Bayern Munich kit. 
came fully prepared for the session. You absolutely have to love that. Manchester United are, you know, I I used to call them a debacle. I won't use the word debacle yet this season until I've seen it. But the, if they don't finish second in this group, I'll be very quick to use that word. Copenhagen, I think, will take points off of United uh, when they go play in Denmark. But ultimately will fall short. And Galatasaray will have incredible home support and home advantage, but will struggle on the road as well, if you ask me. So I, I see this group finishing as it's been drawn out with Bayern, Menu, Copenhagen, and Galatasaray in fourth. I see something similar. You know, the difference, there's a lot of differences, differences between Bayern Munich and Manchester United, but namely, I would say uh, Harry Kane and then whoever Manchester United are deciding to run at number nine is the biggest difference. Um, I, Chris, I know you're a big proponent of running Marcus Rashford at the nine. I couldn't disagree more. He doesn't. He doesn't fit there. He hasn't made me look great ever since then. To be honest, he really has. He doesn't. He, he's just. He's always better off the left, and he just doesn't quite have the skill set to play up top as as a lone nine. But I digress. I think Bayern Munich, even without without uh, Harry Kane, I think would still be predicted to finish top of this group. Um, for United, you know, you've had a couple of disappointing performances to start this season, whether it's Tottenham away, but you're able to, to bounce back against Nottingham Forest despite going down 2-0 uh, within the opening five minutes. You blink blink your eyes and it was 2-0 Nottingham Forest, but you never able to claw their way back and get the win in that one. But I'd expect Byron to, to, to finish first. I think for United, if you don't finish second, that's an absolute disaster considering the other two teams in the group. Yes, you've been drawn in with one other European giant, but... If either if either of Bayern or Manchester United don't make it through, that's that's a disaster. Yeah, they both owe it to themselves to clearly at least get past this stage of the tournament. Um, we've seen worse things for United. Bayern, it would be an absolute disaster. United, you wouldn't be incredibly shocked, but it would still be a shocking result. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the Spurs game because I thought United looked especially good in that first half. And they conceded, and then they deflated, and then they started the second half. Again, really strong first 15 minutes, and I thought, wow, this United team actually really does have an identity that you know they were starting to cultivate under Ten Hag and lost a little bit and then started to build it back up at the end of last year. And I was like, where is Mason Mount going to fit into this team? And he was pulling strings. And then Tottenham scored again, and that was it. No refunds, so, by the way. Yeah, and you know what? Yeah, that's that's a You're fair to say that because I still don't understand it at all. Anyway, enough of me bloviating about Manchester United. Let's move on to Group B. Group B, we've got... The Giants of the Europa League, Sevilla, Arsenal, PSV Eindhoven, and Lens of Ligon. I think this group is pretty straightforward once again. I think the second spot could be up for grabs between PSV and Sevilla, but I think Arsenal finished top and they finished comfortably. I think Lens finished fourth and with very few points. And I, I would I would take Sevilla over Eindhoven if not for the fact that Serginho Dest might be doing some stuff cutting in from the left as he's been playing as a left back and shooting with his right, which is something he's done for the U.S. against Jamaica. I remember that game in front of no fans. Yes. So, you know what? Maybe, you know, just for the culture, I'll go Arsenal first, PSV second, Sevilla lens. Yeah. Um, first of all, Sergio Dest, after the FIFA 21 Rising Stars program, I've just had a love for Sergio Dest. It's just simply never gone away. I remember you mentioned that on one-on-one. I just, I love Sergio Dest. Um, when we talk about this Group B, if kind of feel, a uh, Group B, it kind of feels like North London's finally getting a bit of a break here when it comes to these, you know, these draws. I feel like Arsenal, when was the last time Arsenal was the best player in a Champions League group? Yeah. It's been a long time. They'll draw Bayern in the round of 16. Yeah, oh, like, it's guaranteed. That's kind of how it feels. That's kind of how it always is, but I don't know. 
know. I mean, it does build momentum when you're dominating in a group like that. And I, domination should be an understatement to what they should do. What they should do to this group. Sevilla is a good squad. They're you know, I don't know. They're not special. You know what Sevilla's I mean? Sevilla's dead last in La Liga right now. You know, you know what? Oh, really? You know what Sevilla's going to do? Three games. I honestly didn't know that. They're going to get knocked out and win the Europa. League. They're going to finish third in this group, win and then the they're going to go win the Europa League because that's what they do. I. Can I put, can I just open it up a little bit? Because yeah. there's two groups that I want to talk about, just how bizarre the two of them Do even it. exist. So it. when we look at Group D, right, mm-hmm. who's the best team in that? I'd say Inter Milan. Right. And then you look at Group F, wouldn't they be the worst team in that group? <laughs> Arguably, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. how absurd is that that those two groups exist? That's why we love this tournament. Group, group F, F is tasty. It, group F might be one of the greatest... Uh, just like draws I've ever I feel, seen. In a group. I, I no, group feel, F I feel, is the group of death. I feel for Newcastle. That's maybe I the. Really mo- f- I feel for Newcastle. That's arguably back in the Arguably League. one of the most powerful group of deaths I've ever seen in my like what ten years of maybe seeing mm. Champions League draws. I mean, there's not a bad team in there. Genuinely, no. I think all four of those. I mean, Newcastle definitely is a little worse, but I feel like all those teams could definitely have a legitimate shot at least getting to the final eight. And, and now K- Milan have arguably one of the greatest players <laughs> in Europe right now, Christian Pulisic. What do you mean, arguably? Argue with the greatest <laughs> player in Europe right yeah. now. Tell, Say it with tell your me, chest. Tell man. me what's better than Pulisic on the right, Giroud up front, and Rafael Leal on the left. Most overrated player in the world. But okay. I think what some I can think of one thing that's a little bit better, and it's Pulisic on the left, Tim Weah on the right. Oh yeah, and Flaren Balogun up I don't, down the middle. I don't have these deep U.S. national team loyalties like you guys right, do. Well. I think Christian Pulisic might be the most overrated player in the world. Well, you don't love overrated. Your, wait, wait, on. you don't love like, your country? Uh, I love Italy. Caleb, can you cue the national anthem, please? <laughs> I mean, granted, we lose to Northern Macedonia in regionals and whatever regionals. That's an insane way. I just described it the way they described Little League World Series. <laughs> anyway, um, but I, I don't know. It's just uh, Pulisic. I see all this, you know, pumping up of his top. Now that he's joining the Serie A, it's a farmer's league. No, I can't. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> come I just, on. I just keep on. changing the narrative. Uh, no, but I do think <laughs> Pulisic has been impressive, and he has surprised me for a guy who's been, you know, a serial Pulisicator for the last two years. But then again, he's not good enough to play on our wing as a Chelsea fan. That's kind of what I've been saying the last three years. I still agree with that. Like, I wouldn't take him back if I could right now. So good for him. He's having fun in the fashion capital of the world, but I don't want any <laughs> refund. You know what I mean? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. Before I, I'm of the, I'm a big fan of his, but I will pump the brakes because I know what happens for him when he tries to play many games in a row during a full he season. He pulls a muscle, and I and I'm knocking on wood, very nervously now because I know what that could mean for the United States men's national team as well. But I digress. Group C, got the champions of that farmers league in Italy, Napoli, Real Madrid. Braga of Portugal, who we welcome back to the Champions League after many years in the Europa League, and Union Berlin, who have now emerged as one of the top teams in Germany year after year. It's an absolute awesome story. They were just in the Bundesliga 2 a few years ago. Now they are consistently within the top five of the Bundesliga. It's awesome. Unfortunately, I don't think they're going to do much more than perhaps finish third and go on a Europa League run, but I think Napoli and Real Madrid have the top two spots just about squared away. I'll put Real over Napoli and... Union Berlin to finish third, Braga fourth. Nick, any anything else you'd I like just, to add? I just remember when Union Berlin were in the second division and Bobby Wood was starting at striker for them, <laughs> right, and scoring goals. <laughs> to see how far they've come since and then, now, and now it's Pifok, and now it's and now it's Pifok. But to see how far they've come from from, and they've had such a great start to the Bundesliga season mm-hmm. too. They're in first uh, through two games. Yeah, just like how last season. Just started. like how last season. Right started. out the gates, and it's, absolutely. It's really impressive to to do that two years in a row and to be back in the Champions League. But I think it's. Real Madrid won Napoli too, and I'd be, 
I'd be surprised if 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 Union Berlin is able to to crack into that top two. But I think a, a Europa League spot is definitely on the cards for yeah. them. Um, with with Braga as the other team in the group. Yeah, and they should definitely be pleased with the Europa League because of where they were just a few years ago. Obviously, if they're still consistently qualifying for Champions League qualifiers and then nicking their way into the Champions League, then that's something that they should continue to do and continue to strive for. I don't think they're quite there yet. Group D. This one's a little mo- a little bit more tasty, if you ask me. You got Benfica, Inter Milan, the former finalist, Red Bull Salzburg, and Real Sociedad. Uh, I think this one is probably the most open of the toughest groups, kind of like it's a, it's a bit of a mid off. It's a bit of it's, it's a it's super mid off. It's like a bit of a it's like a B minus off, yeah. and then and then Inter Milan, I'd give like a B plus. You know, I almost feel like all these teams have a similar reputation in their respective league. Yeah, of just being like above average mid. I think well, re- I, with the exception <laughs> Red of Red Bull Salzburg, Salzburg yeah. who, who are given a, who are given the title before right. the season starts right. every year, of course, and that's fine. I I, I do think that because. The way that their style of play is so attractive for tournament football that when Salzburg do go in the Champions League, they always get one or two big results uh, every time. Uh, I think my favorite one, you know, I think you know exactly what I'm going to call back that it was ultimately a loss to Liverpool, but that 4 3 game that Jesse, Jesse Marsh was managing is the game that uh, Liverpool decided to buy Takumi Minamino. Uh, Erling Holland, it was his introduction to European football. He scored uh, at Anfield. They were down 3-0, and they came back and tied it. Eventually lost, but Rebel Salzburg, they, they, they can make some magic happen in this competition, although I don't think they're going to finish within the top two. I think it's going to be Milan and Benfica. Benfica actually strengthened the team pretty impressively this offseason. I mean, Di Maria, for one, is, is going to provide a lot of big changes. He's still mm-hmm. a baller. Like He's still baller. one of those guys who his skill set, no matter how old he is, will always be valuable to any team he's going to play for. Play for. Class is permanent. Totally agree. But I do think Inter Milan will finish top of this group. They're the clear, the clear favorites. Uh, and then everything else is kind of a mad scramble for that second place. Sociedad have the talent as well. Another similar guy to Di Maria. It, but, or sorry, to Benfica, not Di Maria. But, you know, I, I do really think that Inter Milan will run away with the group to a degree. Benfica second, and then there'll be a madhouse for third. I... I think Benfica and Sociedad get out of this group. Really? Okay. Interestingly enough, I just don't know where Inter's goals are coming from. I'm not a fan of Latoro. I've never have been a fan of Latoro. Obviously, this Lukaku soap opera isn't as much of a detriment as it may seem, but where are their goals coming from? I think it's outside of Lautaro Martinez. They they signed Marcus Turam from... um, from Borussia okay. Mönchengladbach, big boy. But I, I still, I still very much think that Lautaro Martinez is good enough to carry the burden, to shoulder the burden of scoring goals at least through this group. In the knockout Maybe. rounds, I would start sure. to, I'd start to ask some of the same questions. I think he has enough to, maybe not top the group as confidently as I think, but I do think that they. If they can't get out of this group, it'll be a big problem. I just think Latero is very comfortable with a guy like Lukaku or a guy like Messi next to him or behind him, and now that it's really his show, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm feeling a little uneasy. I, th- I think that's a very fair point to make, and I think that they're going to address that through the league as well because True. they probably have invested – no, they definitely have invested more money than any other team has in Italy into their squad except for maybe AC Milan at the moment, but they haven't gotten the league to shape out the way that they've wanted it. So, Group E, this one, we bring it back down in quality a little bit if you ask me. you got Feyenoord of the Netherlands, Atletico Madrid, Lazio, and Celtic. I think this is really where we were talking, started talking about the, the mid-off, if you will. But again, there's one clear favorite, and that one being Atletico Madrid. Yeah, I mean, Atletico Madrid in Europe can sometimes be 
a chore to watch mm. a 90 minute, especially when you get to knockout stage. Atletico's bunkering down. It's like very much so. It's, it's, it's tough. I think this group is generous enough to them where they're going to play some attractive football in these six games. I mean, look at what happened on Monday when they're playing, they played Rio Valencia and they won 7-0. Yeah. So when the opponent is a little inferior, they're capable of playing. They have enough talent. I mean, you look at who's in there. I mean, you got Griezmann, you got Memphis Depay. That enough, you know, in terms of an attack. Jow? Correa, Jow, yeah, Correa coming off the bench too. Morata. Marcus Llorente can do, can do anything. There's so much talent in this team. Uh, it's just the way Diego Simeone decides to play in the knockout stage. But I think when you look at this team, uh, when you look at this group, rather, uh, I think Celtic and Feyenoord are, are a clear step below Atletico Madrid and, and Lazio. Uh, maybe not that much from Lazio, but I think Atletico should comfortably finish one in this group. And, you know, Celtic will always have the support behind them. They'll always be uh, some of the best support in Europe, but quality-wise... Scottish League, never that great. Um, I would expect Atletico one, uh, Lazio two, and maybe Feyenoord can do something. Can do something. Yeah, I mean, when I kind of look at the group and I look look at Atletico, kind of that style you're describing of just being hard to watch. I've kind of described that as the Godin era. I feel like, and I feel <laughs> like they're really kind of out of it. You know, I felt like Luis Suarez's attacking kind of season he had when they won the league. I felt like that changed everything. Even if he wasn't sticking around, guys like Jao, you know, th- what you were just talking about, Griezmann coming back. That's so massive. Just as a culture, just that guy being there again. Obviously, that Barca time was very dark for him. But once I- they're in the knockouts, it'll be a four-four-two, and they will defend for their I just, lives. When I just Diego look, Simeone. When I look at teams like Lazio and Celtic, it's like, if you field out Memphis Depay, Griezmann, no, they're and Jao score, Felix, they're like, how are they not scoring four goals a game? You know what I mean? Well, we know why they're not scoring four goals a game when they get later into this tournament. It's because right. they are packing it in with two banks of four that are virtually impenetrable. I love the way that they set up after uh, like defending, or at, sorry, attacking uh, corners because of the way that they pr- to protect a counterattack. They put four players around the the entirety of the of the penalty area to not let anything get their way and it worked it was really effective earlier in uh, Diego Simeone's time and then ever since it's just been like they just trap the ball in the middle half of the field and it just doesn't move from there yeah and also I feel like they play with this like sense of scrappiness and like muddiness which I don't think is productive for their team we saw it in the Man City game last year with that Grealish incident I just I don't like that kind of persona that they kind of give off I don't think a lot of people don't like it I don't think it's what they had when they went to the final with Real I feel like that might have been their best chance to ever do it and I feel like it's just it's just a different kind of mentality and I think they really need to get back to just that exciting young kind of you know movement that the attack is kind of pushing forward right well, now. While I think that they did make some steps, I still think they are comfortably away from anything more than a final eight appearance. And even then, I think would be pushing it depending on who they draw, right. when they, if and when they do get out of Group E. But now we got to go to the Group of Death, Group F. We did talk about it a little bit, but it's Paris Saint Germain, Borussia Dortmund, Milan, and Newcastle United. This is just about as good as it can get in a Champions League group. I think that. We'd be fools to try to predict it one way or the other now. PSG look on paper as they like the favorite, but I'm also thinking like I could no. so easily see PSG not bottom. getting out of this group. Yeah, I, I feel actually, like PSG usually sleepwalk through the group stages, or they no they'll, they'll perform in the group stage, but they're prone to a performance in the group stages that will their foots off the pedal and and, and they, they rely very much on individual talent and in moments yes, to get them through. But that. when 
there's no break in this group. In this group, there's you're playing Dortmund one day, Milan the next, then Newcastle. If PSG going to Newcastle away, Milan away, Dortmund away, that's not easy at all. Like no. that for a team that is their sort of identity is struggling in European football and not and and walking away with League One every year, and then when it gets to the the grittiness of of a knockout tie in the Champions League, they're never up for it. But now that sort of grittiness, I feel like that grittiness and that knockout tie feel is in the group stage, and I could very could well be an advantage. I could then? very well see. No, what, what I'm saying is that PSG struggle mm. in those kinds of environments, and I think I could see PSG struggling to get out of this group. I think this team is this PSG team is dramatically different to what we've seen in the last you know recent years. I yeah. feel like there's definitely been an identity shift this summer, at least the most I've seen in a long time from PSG. It really feels like they're kind of focusing in back on the roots of their team and kind of looking at that Paris market, which you know as we all know is kind of the most populated, dense area of soccer town in the world. And you can see they're really buying into that and they're trying to be a team. They're not trying to be an all-star team. They're trying to be a team. And obviously, Ousmane Dembele is kind of the star of that. French regime and that French kind of flavor that they're bringing into their squad but I really feel like that Mbappe staying would be weird if they didn't have a plan you know what I mean Mbappe turning down a billion dollars and then also <laughs> probably turning turning down a Real offer that was probably there if we were all just kind of being adults about this I feel like he had to have a reason to come back and I feel like he has a good reason and I feel like this might be one of the bigger t- turnaround years for PSG in a long time and nobody's seeing it coming I think part of that reason is also because the door hasn't closed at all for a future Real Madrid move for right, Mbappe, right. which is which was incentive for him to say, well, I don't need to go to play in Saudi Arabia then. So I can just play at home in PSG for a club that I love, that club that now is potentially taking that next step. And I'm glad you talked about the strategy that they're taking too, because it's interesting and it's not one that they've done for a while. And while I agree that they're going to face uh, tougher play in the group stage now more than ever, I see it the other way where I think it could be an advantage because I still think they'll get through this group. I don't know if it's going to be first. I don't know if it's going to be easy. I think they'll probably lose a game or two, but I do think they get through, and because they have that in their back pocket, they're going to be better prepared in the knockout rounds, and they'll have further, they'll have better teams uh, already knocked out behind them. So I think that it could, just to play a little devil's advocate, it could be an advantage. And for, for from, a mar- from a managerial point of view as well, Luis Enrique is a major difference. In oh, just, yes. In just a, the way that they're going to kind of hold themselves just off the field and on the field. I just think it's a culture thing for PSG because obviously we all know the talent's never been a problem. And I feel like a guy like Luis Enrique, a guy who's just basically a born winner, I feel like that's kind of the difference they need to make. They brought in a guy like Pochettino, mm-hmm. known for not winning, right? I mean, obviously, ironically, he's the coach of our team now. But a guy like like Luis Enrique matching that kind of French flavor that you're talking about, I feel like it's the perfect marriage, and I feel like really could you know take some people by surprise. And those home uniforms are beautiful. Also. All, all, all I'm going to say is that I need to see it to believe it first. Right. True, of this course. has happened so many times with PSG. You've had different managers, even before the Messi and Neymar manager, mm-hmm. the Messi and Neymar era. You go back to the Zlatan era with Cavani, and then after that, True. when it was just Neymar, like it's it goes beyond just the superstars of of, of Messi and Neymar. I think. Of all the people to turn around the culture of PSG, Luis, Luis Enrique is a great guy to do that, but I just need to see it to believe it first. And I think this group stage is the, is best, the best test place. to find out. And because if they, if they get through this group, then I think what the experience that they gained as a squad going through a group like this and getting through, they could be potentially in a position to make a run. Yeah, and I, I think that it's, com- it's headlined by the fact that they're going to have to play Borussia Dortmund, who were... 
an inch away, really, from winning the Bundesliga last year. And Milan, who have made some significant improvements to their lineup. And Newcastle, who are sort of in a bit of a renaissance now. Like, I wanted to call them the new kids on the block, but they're sort of like the old head who's chilled around the block and you forgot how good he was, and then he came back with a lot more money in his pocket and is really good again. So I think Group F, I think we all think that Group F is going to bring about the most excitement in terms of the quality of football and the overall outcome of that group because it could go any one of four ways. And while I have PSG and I'll go with Milan to get out of that group for now, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Newcastle and Dortmund. But you guys want to take any picks? I think Newcastle gets out of the group. Yeah, I think Newcastle gets out of the group. Maybe it's my Italian biases with Tenali and just how fantastic he's looked so <laughs> far like in the season. And, you know, Isaac, people call him Terry Henry. That's definitely an overstatement, yeah. but he is a hell of a player. And, you know, getting rid of a guy like St. Maximin as well, I felt like he was just so detrimental to them when it came to, like, a flow kind of perspective. I felt like they passed the well so... He's the incredibly pa- one-dimensional. Yeah, and they passed the ball so well with Pedro Goncalves and all those guys in the middle, and I just felt like the run kind of ended with him. Similarly to how I feel about Raheem Sterling a lot of the time um, but he's you know also made me look stupid in the last couple games but I feel like Newcastle is kind of has nothing to lose and I feel like these teams have a lot to lose and also just hot take I think they might be more talented than Dortmund is I think this this group the fact that it could go any of four ways literally is crazy it's great like, we could predict any combination of two teams from this group and yeah. like I don't think you could get mad at any you don't look silly predict. you don't yeah, look no. silly give me Dortmund and give me Milan Ooh. Um, PSG three, Newcastle. No, but then Newcastle's not going to come in last. This is tough. This see, is tough. See what I'm saying? It's very tough. This is fun. I'll stick with my original. Give me, give me uh, Dortmund, Milan, PSG, and Newcastle. When I look at the matchups, like I just don't think Dortmund or Milan are going into Newcastle and getting a win. Like I just don't think so. I mean, it's you it's, say the same thing about Newcastle Dortmund, going to Dortmund. Dortmund and have the best home support in this yeah. group. Newcastle, Newcastle going to Dortmund and getting a win is, yeah. I think, just is equally far. True. You're right. I, I think, I think home. Home field advantage could end up being the decider in this group. And when we talk about environments, just if we're going to average out all the groups, this is by far the best. If we're just you're just looking yeah. for oh, yeah. the most entertaining league, fans, players, everything as a package, definitely. I think that's a perfect segue to Group G because Group G <laughs> includes. Well, it, just wait a second because have you ever seen the crowds in Serbia for a Red Star Belgrade Champions I League have. tie? Have you ever seen a, a, a Man City or, or RB Leipzig? Not, not the. I mean, good atmospheres, but in terms of uh, history, good at <laughs> those uh, good atmospheres. Give me a break, man. Come on, like, look, they'd be good atmospheres. Maybe in the, it maybe in this country they'd be good, considered good atmospheres, but in Europe, especially for Leipzig and Germany, they're very much uh, considered an artificial club and have been made fun of and uh, mocked for their atmospheres for quite some time. And the same goes for Manchester City. That's not, not true for BSC Young Boys and Red Star Belgrade, though. Who while very, very much predictably so, should not get out of this group, will have incredible home support in Young Boys, if you remember. Won Champions League games against Real Madrid with PFOC at home. Oh, no, sorry, not against Real Madrid, against Manchester United with PFOC at home. Former, I mean, just that's just more USA lore for you. Red Star Belgrade, of course, captained by Canadian goalkeeper Milan Borjan. And so, yeah, we got some North American flavor for those two teams. Unfortunately, they will get eliminated. Wonder who's going to win that one. That, yeah. I mean, <laughs> on, <laughs> like, no disrespect to the country of Canada, no disrespect to Milan Borjan, but if that's your captain, you're finishing dead last. Yeah. Jeez. I think they might finish ahead of young boys. <laughs> you think? It's possible. Young boys. Um, I mean, I, I can't say I've ever watched. I've watched young boys in the Champions League, but, but you know, I'm not watching the Serbian League or the 
or the Swiss League. No, I think I if, it's, if it's anything other than City One, Leipzig Two, I'd be stunned. That's. I think the group will come out how as it's been drawn: City, Leipzig, Belgrade, Young Boys. Is this the most talented Leipzig team, like in at least the last decade? I think it might be. The Leipzig team that made the semifinal yeah. was was really talented, and I would say the couple years before that, when Timo Werner was just coming through the ranks, and right. Yusuf Palsen was like in his prime. But now that you got, team you got is really Javi Javi son. That's what I'm. Yeah, yeah. Javi's yeah, so good, and Werner's just objectively yeah, a better player Werner's now. Werner's now better yeah. than he was ever really was with Chelsea obviously yeah. but even in his last couple years with Leipzig before the move he was he's probably just he's probably at that level again which is really good if Red Star young boys advance that would be the biggest shocker the, of the, group the only way that you, they they I'm, could do that is if they steal points at home it's honestly I'm rooting for him yeah yeah of course disrupt the establishment yeah why not why not I do think that city will will breeze through the group though if we're being objective unfortunately anyway group H and our final group of the Champions League, before we talk a little bit more stateside, we've got Barca, Porto, Shakhtar Donetsk, and Royal Antwerp of the Belgian Pro League. I think this group finishes as it's been drawn out, with Barca first, Porto second, Shakhtar third, and the Belgians Antwerp in fourth. I Again, this this group is really the, another one where you see a top two and a bottom two, and it's very obvious, maybe a little less obvious than in Group G, but I still think it's pretty clearly going to end up this way. Yeah, this is the next step for, for Xavi's Barcelona. Uh, I mean, they they won the league last year, and it's been European disappointment uh, so far in his tenure. So this is a perfect um, draw to sort of get your feet under you, get out of the group, and then and then go on a run in Europe, because Barcelona were great in that league last year, but 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 disappointing in Europe and now it's time to sort of to sort of forge those two things together and, and, and make a run in this Champions League I think Barcelona's won and then besides that I think Antwerp's bottom and then between Porto and Shakhtar Donetsk I'd probably take Porto too but I think that two and three spot between Porto and Shakhtar Donetsk if, if Shakhtar um, come out playing well I could see them potentially getting that second spot when, but I think it's Barca Porto is the one when two. was the last time Barca played in the UCL knockouts 2020? Wow. Possibly? But I think Were they this, lost to in the pandemic. This is a absolute gift to Barcelona. They've they've earned it with how well they played in La Liga last year, but they're back and they're going to be in the knockout round. I I mean, I'm confident in saying that looking at who they're playing against, but that is huge huge news for the Catalonia side. Anything else you want to add on Group H before we wrap up, Chris? Um, yeah, I just you know, Barca is just being extremely impressive, just from what I've seen. You know, this season, obviously, this summer, I was following them, and you know that rigorous preseason that they had. That you know, people were talking about the nightmarish stories from Xavi, but Xavi's done playing games in Europe. He he's not used to losing like this. Mm. He just he can't handle it, and I would be. I'm scared to say it, but I think Barca is my Champions League pick this year. I think they're just super talented. I think they're well as well-rounded as any team in the world is, pretty much, aside from maybe their counterparts in Spain, uh, Real Madrid. But I feel like a guy like Lewandowski didn't make the impact that a guy like Lewandowski makes. And I feel like Lewandowski will be back in Europe this um, upcoming season. And I feel like just that 
you know, I, there's a lot of stress that happens in that midfield, kind of what I touched on with the women's team in possession um, when we were talking about Fordham soccer earlier. But I really feel like guys like Pedri and Gavi, they just create such a sense of calmness around that attack and the defense. <laughs> you said Fordham soccer in Barcelona. No, yeah, I'm comparing Pedri, them. Pedri and Gavi yeah, do not I'm, have what Tristan McFarlane and Abby I'm Doyle comparing have. them. Yeah. Okay. Go, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I really feel like, you know, Pedro and Gavi kind of create a calmness around that defense and attack. I feel like there's been an anxiety there's been you know a nervousness around this Barca team at least when they play and it's been limiting them from playing their best ball and I feel like now that those guys are growing up and really kind of coming into their prominence it's really it's gonna be an exciting time for Barcelona. I have a question real quick uh-huh since when so Oriol Romeo mm-hmm. a guy who was at Southampton for so long and I like he was just like a an okay Premier League midfielder yeah now he's starting for Barcelona um how did that happen does anybody know Dude, like, when did Oriol Romeo get good? He's thirty-one. I don't, I don't know how that happened. And I, I think Barca has kind of a habit with this, where they like, yeah. they, like, they, sometimes they try and it doesn't work. Like Braithwaite, like what was that signing? Like yeah. Paulinho vibe. Pa- yeah, Paulinho. Yeah. Right, exactly. I was just thinking of Paulinho uh, or J- Dale Lefeu. Yeah. Like, what did he? What was he doing going back to Barcelona? Low key a baller. Low key a baller. Low key a baller. No, That's yeah. what I'm saying. Oriol Romeo low key, was always a low key a baller, and now he's kind of being given his flowers. I don't think he's about to break into the Spanish national team like anytime soon at 31. Yeah. But like he's been a very important part of this team, and I I kind of love that that exists uh, for Barca. Though this is about as exciting a time that they've ever had. Oh, not ever. Uh, that's not true <laughs> at all. As they've had in the last three, four years, perhaps. I I don't think that they're a bad pick. I was actually early in the in the, in the uh, competition. I was unironically talking about the insanity of their sex tuple last night with my friend and just how absurd that was. Yeah, like how that how that's never gonna happen again. <laughs> never. Um. So, good for them. I think it's been a real project. You know, to to have the dedication to the younger players, and to see it start to come to fruition is an incredible thing. And because it's Barca, and because we know what their academy can produce, you have to imagine that. They're expecting big and great things from this nucleus of players that you've mentioned in the next few years. And I think this year is really step one in the European stage to reestablish that dominance. I don't know if they're going to win the whole thing, but I do expect that they'll make a run and they're going to look really good doing it. With that said, someone else who uh, Barcelona fans might remember. Oh, you, Barca, old Barcelona fans. Do you guys remember this name? Lionel Messi. Whoa, what a throwback. What a throwback. <laughs> I thought he was going to say Figo. Um, he was he was held to uh, a whole goose egg last night by Walker Zimmerman in Nashville SC. Why are they even paying this guy? Yeah, for real. He's not even doing anything in his uh, ten goals and seven ga- eleven goals and eight. Jack games. Moore, Daniel Lovitz, everything under control. Yeah, Jack Moore, yeah. come on, easy. But Lionel Messi did visit our shores. Uh, when I say our shores, I'm talking very specifically the New York, New Jersey shores. Last weekend, I heard there was a handsome young man with media coverage that night as well. There should have been two. Should have been, been two. There was one, and while they didn't admit my good friend Nick Guzman, they did admit me, and that was a privilege, and I'm very grateful for that. As angry as I am for not letting my good friend over here also join me, it was. I'm a little disappointed you didn't burn the place to the ground in my name. I the security it was too much security, man. Um, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, you tried. Yeah, I did. I gave my best, man. But uh, Lionel Messi showed up with Inter Miami and. You know who didn't show up? The New York Red Bulls, unfortunately. They they had some really good chances in that first half, but um, they're allergic to scoring goals, I think. Um, they got to take a Claritin before they step out there because they don't know what they're doing in front of the net. Tom Barlow had a big miss. Omir Fernandez had a big miss. And you know who doesn't miss? 
Lionel Messi. Yep. And neither does Diego Gomez, apparently, because he also scored. So it was 2-0 to Inter-Miami. Messi off the bench and got an absolutely insane ovation. We know how loud that place can be, even when it's not full. Well, it was full with a record crowd of 26,200, and everyone there was seemingly rooting for Messi and not the home team that plays there. Uh, and when he walked on, it's as loud as I've ever heard, and that pass that he made to Benha Kramaski before that goal was some of the most spectacular just individual performances I've ever seen. And again, the place blew the roof off. I know you guys saw the goal and watched the game from home, but that atmosphere in person was spectacular. James, let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. Being the only guy in this room who, with his eyes, has watched Messi play, just in a broad sense. I've watched Messi play. In person, in front of you. 2016 Copa America. There you go. More in a recent sense. Okay. What does that feel like? Because for, for, me, I haven't seen Messi before. Just the feeling of it. What is that like? So, I had also seen him before that too, but in, okay. a, in a friendly, so it didn't really okay. count. Um, the sense that, like, just his presence, it, it just made everything that much more different. You know, when you arrive to a stadium and the cheers for the warm-ups of the away team are louder than any cheers the home team gets the entire match. That's how you know like you're not just watching a game, you're not just watching a team, you're watching someone that transcends the entire sport. And that was Absolutely. that was a privilege. That was insane. Especially because Messi didn't even come out to warm up for the match. Did you think he wasn't going to play? I I knew he was going to come off the you bench. Think? I knew I was worried that when Inter Miami scored first yeah. that he wouldn't play, mm -hmm. but then he warmed up to start the second half and everyone went crazy. But the thing is, they didn't bring him out for warm-ups in fear that he would get mobbed on the field. So he didn't warm up. He didn't, like, the entire, the rest of the team came out, trained before the game. He stayed inside the locker room with the coaches. I've never seen that before. Like, it's crazy. Anybody on the bench, never happened. But then he came in, scored a spectacular goal. Every time he got the ball, the entire stadium on its feet, crescendo into noise. You think something's going to happen. He could be crazy. in his own goal with the ball. You think something's going to happen. It's just literally art. It's, him. it's art. Yeah, and he, look, the things he does, like, he didn't, he didn't have anything to do in that game until that moment, really. He had, like, a couple of times where he dribbled through the midfield with a pocket of space, but nothing spectacular. It just so happens that every time he has the ball, he's capable of just making something spectacular happen out of, out of nothing. So there was there's that sense of the crowd that Messi's here. We have to – the greatness is just around the corner. And look what he did in the 89th minute. That was a spectacular goal. I was mostly, as a – diehard New York Red Bulls fan and as a reporter for the team I was mostly just disappointed not so much with what happened in the fans because like that was always going to happen it's messy he's going to bring about a big crowd I was more disappointed by the fact that like the team did not take a bigger advantage of the audience that they were going to be having for the first time in forever I don't think enough of that performance or like the experience in the crowd or even just like the way the team played invited fans to be like, I would see this again if Messi wasn't here. That's what bothered me. Listen, Red Bull Arena, when it's full, 25,000 fans, best place. That's one of the best atmospheres in all of the United States. And that's not, uh, that's not an exaggeration. The place literally shakes when it's full. Problem is, it's not full that often. And uh, I think when you look at this Red Bull team like you're talking about, James, they're not exactly the easiest to root for. Nope in terms of what they do on the field. They don't score a lot of goals. They miss a ton of chances. Um, and, and they don't play a very They don't play a brand. very beautiful style of soccer. And I think, like you were saying, this Miami game was a perfect opportunity to... Like, yes, the 25,000 fans that are in the stadium for Messi, not all of them are going to come back next week. 
but you have the chance to make sure that at least some of them do. And I don't think, based on what they did on the field, they didn't sell themselves very high. But that I, that goal in the 89th minute, I mean, I think the fans got what they came for. Oh, 100%. In terms of, I mean, the Alba touch, the messy pass, like just a beautiful, beautiful vintage goal. And so I think fans got what they paid for in that respect. But like you were saying, I wish the Red Bulls would have shown a little something more. Say they take a first-half lead, and or, or, or they, they just score, and, and someone scores a nice goal or something like that, or or they just play with a little more ambition, um, then I think there was a great, it was a great opportunity to sort of improve this franchise. But I think it, I fear it may have gone by the wayside. And before you, before you go, Chris, because I know you have something to say, yeah. it's not even about improving the franchise because, yeah, the franchise is a mess. The front office doesn't care about the team. The fan base has been dying. Attendance has been going down every, every year. Every year. But the real thing that I look at is this season – the team on paper was supposed to be very good, and they haven't been at all. There have been a lot of injuries, coaching change, and now it's crunch time, and you're playing a team that didn't start with Messi, didn't start with Busquets, and you're at home. You've got mostly road games left. You need wins to continue this historic playoff streak, or else it's over. And they came out flat, and they lost, and they had great chances to score and didn't. And I'm not saying that they had to look like prime Barca in order to fill the stadium again, but even from the front office, like, hey, the only player you brought in this summer was Jorge Cabezas Hurtado. No one's heard of that guy. No one's going to be excited about that, and we haven't really seen much of what he could do. He actually looked pretty decent last night against the New England Revolution, but of course the Red Bulls lost 1-0 because they were on the road to the New England Revolution where they never win. Water's wet. So that's where things are for the Red Bulls now, Chris. I, if you want to jump in on the Messi game, now's the time. Yeah, sure. I mean, Messi, we see it now every time we play a game, especially, you know, with this new MLS run he's on. He's really just he's the greatest gift in the history of the sport. Just just the total package, the stupidest through ball I've, like, ever seen in my life. Oh, I yeah. don't know how he saw that. His foot moved, like, four different ways at one time. It blew my mind. Um, but I can attest to Red Bull Arena, if I can just touch on that for a minute. I think I was there in maybe it's most prime. It was – I'm – NYCFC fan, not really as much anymore, but I was a huge Pirlo guy. He came to NYCFC. That correlation was made. I went to a New York derby at Red Bull at Red Bull Arena. It was NYCFC versus the Red Bulls. It was Frank Lampard and Andrea Pirlo versus Bradley Wright Phillips. I think it might have been the prime of the derby. Like I don't think it's gotten any Those better. Those first than that. few years when this Red Bull like Arena was full, yeah, you got yeah. Sasha Kleshton in there too. The place, the Dax. Like, yeah, Dax. The yep. place would shake. Uh, you guys are right. Like it was sold out. The place would literally shake. And I think these ma- these owners, especially, I feel like we can almost group NYCFC and Red Bull together, just how they are in kind yeah. of a similar position right they're now. They're both failing their market. Exactly. I feel uh, that's the point I'm making is that yeah. they're starting to realize now that that New York name on their logo is not carrying their success. It just yeah. isn't. It isn't going to give them success. It's not going to, you know, help this situation they're currently in. What they need to do is start looking at Inter-Miami and say, oh, remember when we were the most successful and we had, like, all those good players from Europe? Maybe let's do that again. Like, maybe mm-hmm. let's get people watching these games. You know, a guy like Castellanos as the striker for NYCFC, that's a homegrown talent. That's a guy who not necessarily is making his name other places. He's making his name there, and I, there's value in that, but they need to just bite the bullet and go after these guys that, you know, maybe Saudi Arabia is going after and listen, as well. And listen, NYCFC have the stadium on the horizon. That's, so there's that's that. The you know that's yeah. going to cause a, a, yeah. a bump in, in attendance and a bump in interest when when they move in uh, right next to the Mets stadium. But, you know, for the Red Bulls, I don't, I don't necessarily it's, see. Yeah. When I see guys like Bobby Firmino going to Saudi Arabia, it's like, why doesn't that guy playing on NYCFC or He's the Red Bulls? He's paid a lot more in Saudi Arabia. Way more money. But, yeah, that's, that's the thing. I, I, I understand there's that. There's salary caps and there's 
I yeah. We need more of a Messi mindset because Messi could have made more money as well, but I he agree. wanted more influence. I I think that there's obviously like an ongoing conversation that's arguably never going to end in, in sort of the strategy MLS takes when they buy players from Europe like that. I think. You know, there's the balance of do we overpay to get players so we can increase fan engagement or do we oh, do we try really hard to develop players and not so much pe- spend for money so we can develop the quality of the game here versus, you know, trying to profit as quickly as possible because the NASL crashed and burned when it followed that strategy. But now there's much more infrastructure and attention to soccer in this country so they can handle it. Were the Red Bulls ever more exciting than when Terry Henry was on the field? Yes, the twenty the the supporter the, shield season. I would say with like Tyler Adams. The, the period right after Danny Thierry Henry retired, when they had Jesse Marsh as the coach, and they really they they did an upheaval of the system of the club. Those they, were good teams. Those were those, those teams were, were really like good. like well rounded. The right Phillips era. Yeah, so yes. the end of the yeah. right Phillips era. Yeah, like yeah, I would say. And did you think you gained that excitement from them being homegrown, or just the like? Just they just the put a good team. No, on they the they field. put a good team that had a style and an identity. So th- it just made it easy to root for it. Like we knew what we were watching, and we got it every time. You, and they were good. That's you knew the, the eleven players you were going to start. You know, to a T. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe one or two like, would, yeah. would rotate. But, but you knew that when you they, they stepped on, they were going to press. They were going to press, and they were going to do it effectively. These are the components they need to have back. Just that uniformity in the eleven. Yeah, honestly. I don't think it necessarily necessarily it matters if they bring in a, a, a you know. If they if they change their recruitment strategy and bring in guys from Europe, it's just about having a cohesion and an identity, and that if you if you put a winning team on the field, mm-hmm. I think that does more than than anything you try to do in terms of yes. in terms of marketing or bringing in star players. And while I think it was a great choice and was the most successful at the time, I'm not married to the pressing style of no. Red Bull football anymore. MLS has the sort games of grown, grown and evolved past it, and I think even Europe, like those teams, are struggling. Ralph Rangnick couldn't couldn't coach a day in the Premier League when he was with United. That team that team was terrible under him. So I don't I don't know if I, if I'm married to that. About idea the way yet. Jesse Marsh has struggled. Too. Jesse Marsh has struggled in Europe too. It's it's a tough adaptable system now, and it, it it's lacked creativity ever since the New York Red Bulls have not had uh, a Sasha Kleshin or a Kaku type player in the midfield. So. I think that while the team doesn't do enough to find players to fit its system, the system itself is broken. So I think that's there's a lot to, to be said about, about the Red Bulls specifically. I think that the stadium coming from New York City FC brings about more excitement and they have less to worry about. But there's also something to be said. The Red Bulls had a new stadium 13 years ago and it brought about a lot more attention. And you see it all fades. these new you see it all these new teams now. Look, I'm telling like Nashville SC fans, FC Cincinnati fans, you guys have it made now. FC Austin, yeah, Austin, Austin, yeah, Austin and FC. Austin are playing terrible now, and their, their fans are less and less interested. Yeah. As in the beginning, it was like the Matthew McConaughey show. Right, they ran, they ran up right to the top of the table yeah. in the Western Conference. But like, look, these things are not permanent. It's soccer in America. It's not does not have the attention and the longevity and infrastructure that it we might like to say it does have in many cases. But let's be real. These things aren't going to last forever if you don't take advantage of them. And I think New York City is a market that's being very much underserved to its soccer fans, um, even just two years removed from an MLS Cup. So yeah. that's that's just where the things are. I didn't mean to end this episode on such a, a sour note. No. Uh, how do we make it? How do we make it happy again? Uh, we'll be back next week. We will be back next week. That's exciting. And if you want to watch some college soccer, you can do that tonight on ESPN Plus or MSG Networks at 6 p.m. as Fordham women take on oh my god i'm blanking who do they play again tonight 
They play Stony, Stony Brook. Brook. Stony Brook. And then yeah. the men tomorrow play UPenn also on ESPN Plus and MSG Networks at 7 p.m. I get ended on a happy note as well. Ironically, we talked for this long. The Prem was not brought up once, ironically. Wow. We talked about the Champions yeah. League. but it's impressive. The Premier League wasn't brought up in maybe one of the more exciting Premier League weekends, at least for you know, recent memories coming up this weekend. I'm very excited for it, just waking up at 10 o'clock and watching my Blues. And there's some other exciting games in the weekend as well. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's that time of year, and I'm very excited. Uh, not this much great soccer has been on in a long time, and I'm very excited. Yeah, we got Arsenal United on Sunday. I great think that's game. the big one. So yeah. Newcastle has a game, too. Newcastle-Brighton. Newcastle that's, that's a that's, very interesting game. That's uh, two, two up-and-comers yes. in the Premier League. So that's very exciting. That's where we're going to leave you guys for this week. Next week, we'll be back. FUVFC in studio. The ball is rolling. We are doing great. I love having you guys back in studio. This is the best. It's the most fun thing we get to do here at WFUV Sports. For WFUV Sports, I'm James Burley, Nick Guzman, and Chris Carina. Thank you, guys. We will see you next time.